we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Nothing is safe from prying eyes in today's world of electronics and marketing. Medical information is no exception. I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to this episode of America Out Loud Pulse. There's nothing more private than our personal health information, yet now our information has become just another product to sell to the highest bidder. Back in 2018, Amazon made a software application that can mine a patient's medical data and convert it into a searchable database. Amazon could customize the database for pharmaceutical companies, insurers, hospitals, researchers, and clinicians. Amazon claims the application would comply with HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996. A little aside, isn't it interesting that the word privacy is not in the title of that law, that everybody talks about the privacy law? Some electronic health records actually have an embedded app that prompted doctors to recommend health products to their patients. And surprise, where were these products sold? Amazon. Amazon has been hailed as a disruptor in medical care with its online clinics. It's easy to get in touch with a clinician of some sort with your symptoms for a flat fee. One customer testimonial reads, Amazon Clinic was incredibly easy and convenient to get my thyroid medicine refilled. No hidden fees, no in-person visit. Also, for someone without health insurance, the cost was the absolute best part. But there is a giant but. Amazon's health clinic requires patients to give Amazon the authority to redisclose their health information in the future. This raises the question, how much is your medical privacy worth? I remember the attempt to discredit Daniel Ellsberg, who exposed damaging information regarding the Vietnam War with the Pentagon Papers. Operatives dispatched by the president broke into Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office looking for juicy tidbits. Imagine how easy that would be now. I mean, come on, hacking into electronic databases has become child's play. We'll talk about this and so much more with my guest, a nationally recognized expert in the field of medical privacy. Twyla Braze is the president and co-founder of Citizens Council for Health Freedom. It's a national patient-centered, privacy-focused, free market policy organization established 25 years ago to support healthcare choices, individualized patient care, and medical and genetic privacy. Her efforts led to a national law requiring parental consent for research using newborn DNA. She's the author of the eight-time award-winning book, Big Brother in the Exam Room, The Dangerous Truth About Electronic Health Records. Welcome to the show, Twyla Braze. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much. Well, first, I just have to ask you, 
What inspired you to start Citizens Council for Health Freedom? Well, it actually began with the realization that the powers that be, including the president, President Clinton at the time, and and others really wanted to move the entire country into managed care or HMOs. And that I I realized that he who controls the healthcare uh, system uh, will control the entire country. So I knew that the Clintons and others wanted to socialize medicine. In this case, they wanted to use HMOs, now called health plans, to do it. And I thought this is the way we're going to lose freedom in this country. So that was that's why we started it. Wow. Well, it's done a lot in these last 20 or so years. My goodness. And it's one of these things people probably don't even know about it. And But behind the scenes, it has really helped folks. When... With HIPAA, first of all, explain what the law is. And the first thing I'm going to say, I I did another show where uh, I corrected what everybody seems to be saying wrong is fentanyl. They call it fentanyl and it's fentanyl. But anyway, HIPAA is H-I-P-A-A, not hippo, like a HIPAA. Anyway, (laughs) why was it passed? I mean, what does it really say? So HIPAA, H-I-P-A-A, that P, a lot of people think that that P stands for privacy. But the the law is called the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, HIPAA. So it's the word portability. It's talking about portability of insurance, but it could also be talking about the portability of your data uh, without your permission, because that's actually what HIPAA does. So in 1996, this law gets passed. It essentially says everybody's medical records can be digitized. Congress says, oh, well, I suppose we should probably pass a privacy law within the next three years to make sure that when it's digitized, it can't just be accessible to everybody because as soon as you digitize it, computerize it, you know, that just makes it highly accessible. Um, But because they didn't pass it in three years, the Secretary of Health and Human Services wrote a rule, the HIPAA, the so-called HIPAA privacy rule. And um, and that rule actually took away your privacy. And at that time, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Secretary Donna Shalala, had written to Congress her recommendations for this uh, for the law that they never passed. And then that's what she did when she wrote the rule. She said, you know, there's an age old right to privacy, but then she followed that by saying, but we need to use data for publicly useful purposes. And so at the end of the day, what we have in the so-called HIPAA privacy rule is really what should be called a permissive data sharing rule. Uh, that your data is shared broadly without your consent. It's shared with uh, for for twelve national priority purposes. It's shared to up to one point, or could be shared with up to one point five million business associates, and those are entities, not just people. So you know, one big company filled with all of their people could be just one entity, right? And so, you know, this is this this was never about protecting your privacy. This was a data grab. And today your 
medical data is much more valuable than your social security number. And your medical data is often considered the new oil or the new gold. And everybody wants a piece of it because they're making money hand over fistful. Well, I tell you, I think about this every time I go to the doctor and there's an electronic medical record and who knows who these records are hooked up to. Now, I'm fortunate that I have a doctor who's not hooked up to anything, just it's basically so she can type and not have to write. But so many people are hooked up to these big mainframes that collect all this stuff. And you wonder, other than marketing, and which you already see when you go on the internet and buy something, it's not 45 seconds before ads for something similar to what you just bought pop up on your screen when you're surfing the net. And I'm trying to imagine taking these medical records and we're going to be inundated even more with ads. And and what really scares me is even though like I'm a nobody, blackmail or somehow keeping you from getting a job because somebody finds out something about you they find distasteful. Or politically useful. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, like with, with Daniel Ellsberg. And fortunately, he's still kicking and still a uh, free speech advocate. But I remember when he was, they tried to excoriate the man merely because he went to a psychiatrist and the fact that somebody wanted to break in looking for juicy information about the man. And uh, now it's just so easy to do. And I used to work at a hospital that had so-called VIPs that went to the hospital And that was after computers came out and people used to hunt the computer and hunt down and see, you know, who was in and what important person was in. And I thought, if people are just doing that, just being nosy, and these are so-called health professionals, imagine what everybody else is doing with the information. Now, you used a term as entities and there's some terms in the law and and we've got a pretty savvy audience here and so they look up this stuff can you say what a covered person is versus a business entity that somehow has access to this information yep and actually the terms are just slightly different they are um a covered entity versus a business associate. So the covered entities are those um, businesses that you expect to have your data. You know, like the radiology facility, the clinic, the laboratory, the hospital, the long-term care facility. Uh, there's also the, um, the the data sharing, the data warehouses. Now, people don't expect those uh, because they're not thinking about them, but those are also a covered entity. Um, and then there are the business. So there's, according to a 2010 rule from HHS that they put out in the year 2010, um, there are like 702,000 covered entities. So the ones that you expect to have access to your data. 
uh, across the country. And then the uh, the business associates, there's 1.5 million of those and all the people inside of them, right? And so that makes 2.2 million entities that can have access to your data without your consent if those who hold your data, the covered entities, choose to share it. Now, the covered entities, let's just say your hospital or your clinic, uh, they can choose to share your data with another hospital, another clinic, another covered entity, right? Or they can choose to share it with a business associate. And the interesting thing about this, and it could be confusing for your audience, is covered entities also become business associates. So, so you know, they, they're they always looking for business, and part of their business is they can do things with the data. If they can get one clinic to come to them, to parse out their data. So so, um, so let's just take um, a large clinic system, right? They offer certain data uh, services. And so a small hospital says, okay, I'll use you, the big hospital, as my uh, business associate. So there are so many uh, entities here with different functions that can have access to your data without your consent. There isn't unless in here. There is an unless in here. So that that is that they can share your data with without your consent unless a state law protects your medical privacy. Because that's one thing that HIPAA the law and HIPAA the so-called privacy rule both have and that is called state preemption. And it means that if a state has a state law that is actually stronger than HIPAA, which is not hard to do, um, (laughs) then that state law rules the day. And so in Minnesota, we have a law that is uh, consent, patient consent required for all sharing of data, except in three, what we call break the glass situations. You're comatose, you know, you're in the emergency room, you can't speak for yourself, that sort of thing, you're dying, nobody can nobody can answer anything. So then they can break the glass and look into the medical records without your consent. Otherwise, they need your consent. But we're the only state that has that law. Well, do you, do you know how many states have similar laws or laws that are have a little more beef in it than HIPAA? No. So that was one thing that I talk about in my book, Big Brother in the Exam Room, is looking at different laws and what different states and what they do. And most states, most state legislators believe that HIPAA is a privacy rule that protects privacy. So most states have conformed their state laws to HIPAA. So they say we conform to HIPAA. So they don't find any need to have a separate state law because they believe that HIPAA is the strongest privacy law in the nation. And they do not understand that it's not a privacy law at all. So, this, you know, um, you know, perhaps one thing that I should say about this is that uh April, April of 2023, April um, 14th, 2023, this year, was the 20th anniversary of the HIPAA rule, the so-called privacy rule, which is really a no privacy rule. So we spent the entire month of April using social media, radio, our health freedom minutes that are on the radio every day. Uh, videos. We did a man on the street video. And in our man, just exposing HIPAA as a deliberate deception. So this campaign was called Exposing HIPAA, 
the deliberate deception. And you know what I think a lot of people would find most interesting, other than our our 20 harms, we have our 20 harms on our website at cchfreedom.org. You can find our 20 harms, HIPAA harms, um, is our man on the street video. We went to the Minnesota State Fair and we interviewed a whole bunch of people, black, white, uh, disabled, the whole kit and caboodle, men, women. (laughs) Absolutely every one of them said HIPAA protects their privacy. (laughs) And so then when we told them what it actually did, they're like, so what am I signing those papers for? I mean, what? I don't really like this, right? But all of them believe that HIPAA protects privacy. So do most state legislators. And so, as a matter of fact, do most uh, congressional staffers. A bit. Right now, I'm going to talk about my old friend, Covix RX. Covix RX, as many of you may know, is a nasal spray. And it has iodine, xylitol, some vitamin D in it. And it came out with COVID, COVID but... You can use it for any upper respiratory illness. Think about it. 95% of these respiratory illnesses that we get come in through the nose. And so if we can stop these viruses, bacteria from incubating in the nose, we can help keep ourselves from getting a lower respiratory tract infection, which really makes us sick. So I use it. I have used it. I started using it during COVID. I use it now. I've got allergies, so I get the sniffles and don't know, oh, is it an allergy or a cold? And uh, I tell you, knock on wood, it's kept me from getting colds and certainly from getting COVID. And one of the best things I like about it, especially it kind of goes along with the theme of our show, Cofix RX was invented by USA doctors. It's made in the USA. And what could be better than that? So if you want to learn more about it, go to the website, our website, there's a little Cofix RX button, you can click it on. And there's more information about it, you can purchase it there, or any health food store and lots of pharmacies around the country. So I hope you'll try it. You'll like it. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution, Cofix RX. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix RX nasal solution cleanse. That's cofixrx.com. Save 20% by using promo code out loud at cofixrx.com. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. So back to HIPAA and privacy. So before we went on the break, we were talking about refusing to sign that HIPAA form that we're all presented with when we go to the doctor's office. So why don't you tell us why not to sign it and your list of five things. 
So the reason not to sign it is to not perpetuate the myth that HIPAA has anything to do with protecting privacy. So one, you're not going to participate in it, perpetuate it. Two, you're going to educate the staff and they're going to realize, oh, they actually don't have to sign it. Um, and there's new information for them, right? And then in addition to that, if you do sign it, when they share information that you consider very confidential, they will waive that form that you signed. They will waive it under your nose and they will say, well, you should not have told us what you thought was confidential because you signed this form. You signed this form to say that you have read or you understood the notice of privacy practices. And then if you looked at the notice of privacy practices, you would have realized how broadly we will share your data without your consent. So it's your fault that you shared this private information. And so it's not our fault. You signed it, you knew. And so, you know, we have nothing to, you know, you can't blame us, right? So that's why you shouldn't sign it. It's kind of multifaceted. But let's just talk about the four way, five ways that it's presented to you. So one of them, which is rarer today than it was in the beginning, uh, 20 years ago, is one sheet of paper that is just the HIPAA form. There's nothing else on that paper except that it says, I acknowledge that I have received or some forms say read or understood uh, the notice of privacy practices. And then it's got a signature and then you sign it, right? And that's all it is. That's all that's on that form. Um, another uh, kind of way this is presented to you, because um, I should say the fact of the matter is it's not so much the form that you're signing, you're signing this acknowledgement statement. That's what they want you to sign is that you have read or received or understood. They use different words. Um, the notice of privacy practices. So you'll find one of those three words and then it's, so it's just this one statement and they call it the acknowledgement statement. That's what they want you to sign. So that acknowledgement statement is either on that one form that I talked about before. That's all it is on there, right? Just that statement. Uh, the second one is that it's embedded in a multiple consent form. So it's got, I, I consent to treatment at the top. I consent to be billed, you know, to pay my bills, right? Uh, next, and then they have a whole plethora of other things. And somewhere embedded in there is, I have read the notice of privacy practices, or I have received the notice of privacy practices, right? And um, so that's a, a second way. Another way is they will give you the notice of privacy practices and it will have signature lines on one page or every page, and they'll ask you to sign so that, that you're actually reading the notice of privacy practices and you're signing it. Uh, a fourth way is that you get a um, an iPad or you get some sort of electronic tablet and they ask you to go through it. And there's many problems with that because they're asking you questions you probably don't want to answer. But one of them could be the I have read the notice of privacy practices. And then the, the, the fifth one is the little tiny signature pad. You know, it's like that little itsy bitsy thing. And they just say, just sign here. It's just a signature pad, right? And then you say, well, what is it? And they say, it's, it's the it's the HIPAA form. Well, you can't see the HIPAA form. You don't know what words there are behind there. You're signing a legal document and you have no idea what you're signing. So those are the five ways that it will come to you. And in no way, shape or form, do you have to sign any of them? And so in the embedded form, where it's like embedded in all the other consent provisions, you can cross it out. And that you can you can just cross that out if you want. You can date it and sign it. 
um, because because it's embedded, or you can just cross it out, and then you can sign at the bottom. Uh, in the one in in all the rest of them, you don't have to do it. And if and, and if you if you can't get past the one on the electric pad, right? They got many questions. You're, they're taking you from screen to screen to screen to screen, mm-hmm. and then you don't want to you don't want to do that one. Well, you take it up to the desk and you say, "I don't want to. I don't want to do this one. I don't have to do this one. So how can we get past this so I can get to the next screen?" And so this becomes sometimes a matter of management where they have to call the manager. Uh, and then they'll get you past that screen. And of course, the little tiny pad, you can say, you know, give me the paper copy because I have no idea what I'm signing. And I don't sign things when I have no idea what I'm signing. And so that's how you can get past that one. If you don't like the whole thing that they give you, you can do what I said for all of these other ways of it being presented. Boy, I think those electronic signature pad things, that would get a lot of people to just go ahead and sign it because it's such a pain in the neck. And you go up to the receptionist and she says, I don't know what to do with this. And like you say, then she or he might have to call the manager and suddenly you're that person is in line and holding up the whole thing and everybody (laughs) hates you by the time you're leaving the office. But we say all that. But think about it. Think of the consequences to you and how worth it it is for you to assert your rights. We're always asserting our rights in other arenas. And this, to me, is one of the most important things we have, our own personal medical information. Well, I think, you know, that's the other thing with those tablets, right? So the last time I was presented with a tablet and they had a bunch of questions I didn't want to answer. It wasn't just that one, right? It was a bunch of them. And I'm like, okay, I took the tablet up and I said, I I need a paper copy of this and then I'll decide what I'm going to, you know, agree with or not. They're like, well, we don't do that. I said, well, that's, that's what I need. I said, surely you have a paper copy. Yeah, but we're not supposed to, we're not supposed to do that. I said, well, that's. That's the only way this is going to happen. So they went and they found the paper copy. And sure enough, I crossed a bunch of things out because there are a lot of things I didn't want to consent to. I consider these coercive consent forms, these consolidated consent forms where they've got multiple things like Mayo Clinic has, I don't know, they got 30 different things, right? And you've got one signature line. It's coercing you into agreeing to everything that's on that form. And uh, and those, those should actually be wrong. But at least if you got a paper, you can cross it out and then you can ask for a copy of it and then you can take the copy of it home. Whether they follow it or not is anybody's guess. Well, this is very good information. It's, I, I had to chuckle when you talked about asking for a paper copy. I went into the DMV to take my driver's test, the, just the written test, and they you know, point with that finger and wave you over to the computers. And I said... Well, I studied from the booklet. I'd like a paper copy. And it was like I'd asked to murder somebody's grandmother. She looks in the back and yells like to shame me in the DMV. This one wants a paper test. (laughs) Those are those episodes that teach you, be strong. (laughs) Stick to your guns. That's right. That's right. And here it's more important. Well, now we've got added to the mix of all these electronics is telemedicine. 
So we're talking about talking to the doctor, another clinician over the internet, because telemedicine just isn't a phone call. It's going over the internet. Somehow that office visit is recorded. I've never done telemedicine, so I don't know how they record it, how they take the notes, is the whole thing recorded, and who has access to that? Well, I think it really, uh, it does depend. I remember looking at this whole telemedicine a long time ago and saying, what happens to the videos, right? What happens to those private conversations? Because when you go into the doctor's office, you are not being recorded. And although I, I, I say that, because for the most part, that's true. But even in my book, I talked about the virtual scribes. So there's the scribes that come in, which is its own violation. And you can always tell the scribe to leave. You can tell the doctor, I want this to be a visit between you and me. And I don't know, I don't know that person. And I don't want that person overhearing everything we're talking about or taking every word down that I say. And so let's just not have the scribe in this visit, okay? <laughs> so that's the that's the in-person scribe. But there are doctors' offices now starting to move toward virtual scribes that is a recorder in the exam room, an invisible recorder, or it could be a visible recorder, but no matter what, it's sitting there in the exam room. And then sometimes that that whole recording is sent to like Thailand or India or somewhere where they will transcribe it and put it into the medical record. So um, so that's, you know, for an in-person visit. So now you're talking telemedicine. And of course, the whole thing is recorded. Um, and it does depend, I think, though, on the on the entity that's doing it. So like as far as how safe you might feel. And I think you should ask about that. Where does this go? How long is it kept? You know, it's it's their own protocols. There there are telemedicine laws, but I don't think they they get into that kind of um, prescription. Right. As to how how all of those uh, things, all those details. Right. Mm-hmm. But like over during covid. There are a lot of people turning to telemedicine to find the COVID, I call them COVID care doctors, the ones who would actually treat you early and right. Uh, The ones who were doing the right thing to take care of you and not telling you to, you know, go home. Come back. Right. So um, so that was mostly being done through telemedicine across the country because there were so few. And I don't know the degree to which those doctors who really valued independence and freedom. I don't know the degree to which those doctors were doing that. But if you're looking at like going to Mayo Clinic or, you know, Cleveland Clinic or all of those telemedicine shops, that have um, come up now. I I think there might even be a sense that the videotapes themselves could be valuable, as valuable as data, right? For researchers and analysts. And I think I think patient beware is what I would say is you got to figure out what what's the protocols for this and what are your rights. Well, the thing that's interesting on this data sharing is many times they say, oh, well, your name isn't on it. And I'm thinking, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, or maybe there's enough data in there that they could figure out who you are anyway, Um, that with telemedicine, your face is on it. Is it going to be like the news where they put kind of that little blur out of somebody's butt or their breasts and they'll put a little blur out of your face? So they won't know who you are. I can't imagine that uh, somebody's going to go to all that trouble so they can actually see you. 
I never check race. I think if public health wants to do something about race, they can go out and go door to door and find out. And I'm one of those declined estates. And I'm wondering, well, gee, if I did telemedicine, are they going to look at everybody's picture and then just decide what race they are and include that in their data? Who knows? Well, Actually, that's not as far-fetched as you think, because there are laws about recording race and ethnicity. I'm trying to think now where where I read these laws, but so I'm not going to come up with the specifics for you. But I, what I distinctly remember, it might have been actually in the birth certificate. When I was looking at the birth certificate, if the family refused or just didn't include race or ethnicity, it by law or by the protocols, the regulations of the health department, they the uh, the nurses, the doctors were required to fill it out to make their own determination about what the ethnicity and the the so-called race, which is really color. But there's no there's no such thing as race. That's the other thing, right? So we're filling out we're filling out something that's false because if if your mother is Brazilian and your father is black, well, what are what are you? right? Obama got to pick his race. Well, then there's no such thing, right? It's really about color. And so um, and so I, I discourage people from ever filling that out. But I do know that in some instances, like I think it was birth certificates, where the healthcare workers are required uh, to, to fill it out for the patient and to choose one, whether or not the patient would actually pick that. Well, that sounds right. Uh, and I attended a birth when I was in medical school of some twins that were born to a black guy and his Asian wife. And the little girl twin looked exactly like the Asian wife and the little boy twin looked exactly like the black father. And the nurse looked at them and asked the doctor, what race should I put on the birth certificate? And the <laughs> doctor, who was very funny, he just said, I say human Yes, very good. <laughs> yes. So I always remembered that. That was when I was a third year medical student. And I thought if anybody asked me to put it on there, that's what I'm writing. Actually, I know some people who that's exactly what they write on the census. They mm-hmm. write. Yeah. Yeah. But, well, and you know, some- this, this is not as funny or unimportant as some people think it is, because the entire movement right now within public health and within uh, medical tyranny, you might say, is to make everything about health equity, uh, racial inequity and health disparities. And they're using that data on race and ethnicity to come up with claims about about structural racism and racist doctors and racist hospitals and, you know, all of this sort of thing. And so this, you know, providing them with this kind of data gives them fodder to make these kind of claims, which are false. You know, it's as though, um, it's as though you're, you're, they they just take the data and say, well, this doctor sees more of this kind of patient and less of that kind of patient and does this for these patients and, and doesn't do it for these patients. And therefore, th- there's a big health disparity here. Really? Is that the only thing that counts? It's not the patient's wishes, the patient's patho- pathophysiology or physiology. It's, 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 it's side effects to the medications. It's, it's none of that. It's just all about the color of the people? 
Oh, exactly. And many times it's not the color. It's whether you're in a rural area versus an urban area. And there's so many other factors that go in. And I want to go into that since we started talking about that after the break, because that's one of the other flaws in these electronic systems is this checklist system. It's supposed to help you identify the so-called social determinants of health, but so what? You check a box and then you move on to the next box and don't really talk to the patient like we did in the old days where you actually ask the patient about what's going on in their life. So when we get back, we'll talk a little more about that. For now, I just want to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. And as you know, we are always a beat ahead. Pulse is on every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 11 p.m. and on iHeartRadio at 8 a.m. the next morning. All shows go direct to podcast in 24 hours, and the episodes are on lots of the podcast networks, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iHeart. So make it easy, bookmark americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. One of my favorite things about the setup with Pulse is that it's a different doctor every day. Mondays, it's with me, Marilyn Singleton. Tuesdays, we have the concerned doctors, Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tangersley. Wednesdays with Dr. Peter McCulloch and Malcolm Out Loud. Thursdays with Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan. And Fridays with Yale epidemiologist, Dr. Harvey Reich. And remember, we now have Nurses Out Loud, and they're on on Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern with their encore at 10 p.m. So got a lot of medical information, political medical information out there. So take a listen to one, all, or all of them. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. So back to the show, we were talking about all these racial designations and things you don't want to answer on these uh, questionnaires. And I mentioned the social determinants of health, which is kind of a big thing now. And it's an important thing. When I was in medical school, that was one of the things you asked. You talked about 
what the so-called chief complaint was, why the patient came to you, and then you did the, the current medical history, the past medical history, and did something called a social history, and that included smoking and drinking and other things about their life. And that was very conversational. Now it's an electronic health record checklist. So Twyla, I know you're such a fan of checklists. So <laughs> let's talk about that. <laughs> well, social determinants of health. So, um, you know, this is this is comes out of the whole health disparities, health equity movement, which is really all about socializing. Uh, socializing medicine in America under these this false uh, claim that we have all of these disparities, all of these uh, in inequalities in healthcare, and so we've got to make it all equal. And so, of course, that means we just have to socialize everything. That's where it's all being driven. And so, it, it might sound fine. Of course, everything that happens in a person's life uh, can make a difference as to you know um, how healthy they are. They are their choices, but really the whole movement to make social determinants of health uh, part of the electronic health record um, is really a movement towards uh, socialism. And it's also a movement towards giving the government a reason to intervene and interfere in every aspect of your life. So if you are looking at a list of social determinants of health, uh, and we've got a one-pager on this, uh, uh, we, we we took this concern to Congress and said, you know, you got to watch legislation and make sure these words aren't in there. And one uh, one congressional staffer said, well, those words are in the, those words are in legislation on all sorts of areas. There's in agriculture and transportation and education. It's not just in healthcare. And so uh, so we created a one-pager so that staffers could share this on Capitol Hill and really start to understand what this is and how much it is a threat to our freedom. It sounds good, this this idea, but it's really, you know, giving government uh, an in into your life. And so when you look at the list, of possible social determinants of health. This is when the American public, if they just looked at the list, um, would see exactly how all-consuming it is. You know, from what their income is, what their schooling was, um, what their health is, what their insurance level is, uh, what kind of housing they have, what kind of transportation they have. Are they insured? Are they, are they this? Are they that? Do they have children? You know, it's, it's, it's everything in your life. And they say everything in your life affects whether you're healthy. And so we, as government, need to be making sure people are healthy and uh, therefore be involved in all of these aspects of your life. And so therefore, it is a very socialist uh, agenda. Some call it even Marxist. Well, it's sad because it went from a doctor or the nurse in the office having a conversation with the patient, just trying to find out what's going on. Did your dog recently die? I mean, all these things that affect how you're feeling at that moment in time. I can't tell you how many patients say, well, my back was fine until my husband died. Well, they probably had back pain before, but the husband dying, you know, brought this stuff out. So it's important, but that's a conversation. It's not a checklist. And when you talk about 
having the government come into your life based on this checklist, believe me, there is a list of things that they have decided are public health issues. And if you decide it's a public health and you would know, you know public health, that suddenly that means the government can get involved, they can take the next step and call it an emergency. They have as a public health issue, climate change, gambling, I the whole list of things, bullying. So they've named everything a public health issue, housing. And in fact, in some states, you can give Medicaid money, that's medical care money, to pay for housing. So they have taken over everything. And food and transportation. That's You're- right. Medicaid dollars are going for this. And of course, most Medicare is not coming out of health plans. And um, health plans consider Medicaid and Medicare Advantage plans, right? Those programs, right? Those two government programs are really cash cows to these health plans. And if they can provide you with food and transportation and they can use up a more majority of their the money on that, you know, then they can ration your care at the end when you really need the reason why you thought you had Medicaid or Medicare or insurance or whatever it is, right? You thought you had it to give you care and, you know, to save your life or 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 bring quality to your life or to, you know, uh, heal your injury or, or whatever, right? But they've used up the money on, you know, giving people food and giving people transportation and giving people this and giving people that. And that is not why you have coverage. That's not what you have coverage for, but that's part of the social determinants of health. They're going to, essentially, they're going to steer all this money away from actual medical care and put it into all of these other social services, Well, and like you say, then the money is all gone when you really need it. And and then they know so much about you. They know who they can schnooker into saying, well, I'm sorry, ma'am. I think it's time for you to go. And this really bothers me. Talk about this whole nother issue. And everybody can look back to one of my uh, interviews with uh, Heidi Klesig about transplants and dying a little bit sooner before your time, that there might be a group of people that they can decide, well, we don't need you anymore on this earth. And they're going to be in charge of you at that point. And sometimes it sounds conspiracy theorist, but it's not that we see these things happening every day in um, California they're throwing out uh, the possibility of changing our electric bills to where there's a base electric rate where poor people pay $15 a month plus whatever they have uh, on their daily electricity. That's just the baseline rate. But people over a certain income level, of course, they haven't named what the income level is, will pay anywhere up to a baseline up to $250 a month. That's before adding on their day-to-day electric charges. And if that's not socialism, I don't know what is. And so these things are happening. They're happening under our nose. And like you always say, Twyla, it's the healthcare 
that's where it begins. Right, because they can say everything in life, healthcare impact, I don't know, everything in your life impacts your ability to be healthy. And so therefore we have a reason to intervene, right? But they don't, not under the constitution, not under our individual rights, they don't have a reason to intervene. And unfortunately, too many governors, too many legislators, too many people themselves have forgotten, you know, what individual rights are, what the rule of law is. They've just, they've forgotten. And uh, and it's not good for our country. Well, they make free stuff, as we say, so attractive that um, you think, oh, well, what does it hurt? Hey, I paid my taxes. Give it to me anyway. I mean, I think of how I felt when I had gone to private college and then it's time to go to medical school. Uh, the coffers were <laughs> draining dry and UCSF, top-notch medical school, my parents were California residents. They paid their California taxes all those years. So I went to a state school for don't throw up, but $249 a quarter and uh, not including books. So that was state resident. They don't do that anymore. They make professional school people pay out-of-state tuition costs. But I remember thinking that attitude. I paid my taxes. My parents paid their taxes. We deserve to get this. And so people feel like, hey, I put into the system. I'm going to get it out. I'm going to get the free stuff. But you become a slave to the government if you aren't careful with what you decide to accept from the government. And mostly with data, which is what we're talking about now, they're not giving you things. The data is all about control. And so the, the data is about uh, profiling. It's about control. It's, it's in healthcare. It's how they limit what doctors can do, how they profile patients, how they say certain types of patients don't get certain type of care. We know all this about the patient. They had that kind of life. Uh, or, or they did that kind of a thing or, you know, whatever it is, or the doctors, you know, are you following the protocol? You're not following the protocol. So we're going to give you less money because you're not following the protocol. So collecting your data has nothing to do with giving you more free stuff. It has to do with controlling you. And, you know, a lot of what you're talking about there with, you know, I paid in my taxes. Well, a lot of the free stuff goes to people who haven't paid a wit. <laughs> and that includes in Medicaid. And here uh, in, in Minnesota, they just passed a law that said, you know, one, all illegals are going to get regular driver's licenses, not anything that shows that they're illegal, right? And then all illegals will have access to Minnesota Care, the state Medicaid, special Medicaid program. So all of them, free stuff. In, in the in the second biennium, in the first biennium, it's going to be $8 million. In the second biennium, they expect it to cost $100 million. Well, they're not paying, they're not paying taxes, <laughs> Well, right? it certainly morphed because there was a time when it was, yes, you merited because you did pay your taxes. And now it's a handful of people pay all the taxes for everybody else who wants to suck off the system. Well, you know, they have this expression as California goes, so goes the nation. And it sounds like Minnesota followed California with the driver's licenses and uh, met, we call our Medicaid, Medi-Cal for illegal aliens and it's 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 wrong 
And I feel like there's plenty of legal residents in the United States that do need a hand, who have contributed to the country, who for some reason have fallen on hard times, that the monies ought to go to them, certainly first. And it's not like we have so much left over that we can give handouts to the world. We're we're starting to run out of time. I can't believe it. We've gone so much off script here, but it's a wonderful conversation that just I'd like you to just tell people about baby DNA collection, because I don't think a lot of people have heard of it or know about it, maybe unless they recently had a baby. Yeah, so this goes back to this idea of public health having this power by having the data, but also um, data being highly valuable. So across the country, different states are keeping the DNA of newborns after the newborn screening test is done. Now, most parents don't understand this. The newborn screening test, the heel gets pricked in the hospital within the first 24 to 48 hours. The blood is put on special filter paper on these cards. The card leaves the hospital room. The parents think it's just going down to the lab, but no, it's being sent to the state health department. The state health department does genetic tests, essentially, because this is the largest genetic testing program in the entire country. It's called newborn screening. And so um, it goes to the state health department. They do these tests. They uh, And different uh, tests are done in, in different states. California, I think, has probably the most conditions that are tested for. There are some that are tested for only 32 conditions. I think California has a primary test and a secondary test, and there's maybe a total of 80 conditions tested for. But then uh, states like California uh, keep the DNA and it becomes a possession of the state government. Now, this DNA can be kept like Michigan is keeping it forever. And there's a lawsuit in uh, Michigan. There's been five lawsuits, uh, four of them successful across the country because of the storage, the government storage of newborn DNA. And uh, you might realize that The government cannot take your DNA unless you're a criminal or they think you are one. There are specific laws about the government taking your DNA, but yet they're taking it at birth because of the newborn screening program. And they just decided it was valuable. So some states like California are actually selling uh, the um, punches out of these uh, blood spots, this filter paper that has this blood on. And researchers are buying punches of blood, of DNA, because that's the only thing left on it to do anything with is the DNA. So they're they're actually selling it. Uh, Texas, it was found out that Texas was using their blood spots for barter with Perkin Elmer. And Perkin Elmer is a newborn screening, but other kind of also a, a company. And Perkin Elmer wanted blood spots and Perkin Elmer gave them um, lab equipment And so they did an exchange. And so there's a lawsuit and the parents won on that lawsuit. Uh, But this is happening around the country. Uh, We are the only organization working on this issue. We did get a law in 2014 to say that states, uh, uh, that for federally funded research, they had to get parental consent for the use of these blood spots. That law went away as soon as um, the day before President Trump went into office. And we are now trying to get a permanent law rather than a temporary law like that one was. We're trying to get a permanent law for parent consent for federally funded research. So we're working with uh, members of Congress to try and make that happen. 
Um, and so this the states could um, could stop this. Parents should ask their state legislators to make sure that the DNA is not kept, certainly not longer than just a few months. It's it's uh, the blood spots blood spots can't be used for newborn screening after six months. After that, it's only the DNA that's left there. And so it becomes this big warehousing of newborn DNA. And all of these newborns become full-grown citizens who have their DNA stored by the government without their consent. So that's kind of the the issue in, in short. Oh, my goodness. Well, I hope we didn't scare everybody listening, but in a way, I hope we do. That's kind of why we do these shows, to let you know what's going on so you can be aware. Now, one thing I would like you to be aware of, the other thing that uh, Twyla works on, and we just have a couple seconds, is using direct pay practices to avoid some of this grotesque invasion into our privacy. Now, don't you have, so it's a separate website from the Freedom, uh, Citizens Freedom website. So give me the two separate websites, one for the Citizens Council and one for the direct pay practices. So the Citizens Citizens Council for Health Freedom is CCH freedom.org and the other one is the wedge of health freedom that national directory of cash-based practices that one is at jointhewedge.com jointhewedge.com and we're really using it as a foundation for building a brand new parallel system of health freedom across the country Someday we even want cash-based hospitals and and real insurance that pays the patient and then nobody interferes and nobody intervenes. Well, that sounds good. And as they say, from your lips to God's ears and all of us here on the show and many other people who are out there working with you are trying for this and all we can do is keep on pushing and uh the the time for just kind of hoping for the best and hoping all this government intrusion will go away is over. We have to be active. And every one of you out there, you can follow Twyla's lead, not sign all those massive consents. Don't consent to things that you don't want to consent to just because you think you have to, because you don't. So go to the website, find these fact sheets, And when you go into an office or a facility, you can be armed with the facts. Thank you, Twyla Braze, for coming on the show. And I hope you'll do it again soon. Thank you. I loved it. Okay. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And remember that we do have our feature of emails. You can send us an email. First names are fine. If you have any questions for the host or for the guest and send it to americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse and we'll get you an answer. So remember, whether you agree or have other opinions, share the show. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud.